Little Nations by James H. Dillard. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Little Nations by James H. Dillard, Charlottesville, Virginia. From the South Atlantic Quarterly, Volume 19, Number 3, July 1920. Paradoxical as it sounds, many of us in America still believe that in the Great War we were fighting for the establishment of friendship among all nations of the world, that we were, in the words of the Dublin verses, fighting one another for conciliation and hating each other for the love of God. Up to this time, nations have been administered on the theory of inevitable contention with fellow nations. The governments have seemed to believe that the prosperity of each could be promoted only at the expense of some other or others. To use a phrase of John Fiske, tomahawks and tariffs has been the motto. It is unthinkable that such internationalism should continue indefinitely. My purpose in this brief article is to suggest a particular good which may perhaps result from a League of Nations, and to express the thought that no other good would go further towards making amends for the awful sufferings through which the world was dragged. I mean the safety of little nations. We should realize the fact that the contribution of a nation to civilization need not depend upon its size. Let us incidentally make a brief digression on this interesting question of size. We have become so enamoured of mere bigness that a plea for anything not big, whether it be a shop, a school, a town, or a nation, may seem to many a sign of unorthodoxy. We have come to marvel at, and then to admire the bigness of all kinds of enterprises and institutions and governments, so that we are actually in danger of losing sight of the fact that there may be virtues in little things. The little shop which its individual proprietor may still have attractions and advantages beyond the big department store. The little school with its closer approach of pupil and teacher may still offer better chances of real education than the big institution. The little town with its trees and quietness may be a better place to live in than it will be when grown into the bigness to which it ambitiously aspires. The virtue of bigness or smallness depends upon the more favourable conditions which one or the other may afford for the satisfaction and welfare of mankind. The object of all our labour under the sun is the development of the individual man, or rather let us say, of all individual men. All creation must bend to this chance for the development of the individual intellect and character and soul. It is to this purpose that all business, all institutions, all governments must bring their service. When big enterprises and big institutions and big governments are more effective for this purpose, then we shall have enterprises and institutions and governments that are big. But if at other times smaller ways are better for the best human needs and satisfaction and activity, then the ways and days of smaller things are not to be despised. The huge manufactories, let us say, of furniture, 
have enabled many to have comforts which the old way of handmade articles could not supply but there are still virtues and beauties in the work of the free hand of the individual workman little of the free play of hand and mind is to be seen in modern work but we see it at every turn in the medieval cathedrals for example with their charming variations of detail and decoration individuality had play even to running over as we see in caprices like the rose face of king's college chapel and the imp of lincoln cathedral consider the differences between the workman who stands by a machine to watch and see that it makes the same things over and over according to the pattern and the workman who with exuberant joy or mischief in the midst of his work some four hundred years ago put the face in the centre of that marble rose in king's college chapel the factory that consists of one man has its virtue the mere fact of the physical extent of the government under which men live is one of importance in their development for one of the factors in the development of man is his being a part of the independent development of his country or section this is one of the arguments for what is called local self-government and those of the fathers of our country who contended for the preservation of state rights in the nation and for country rights in the states were contending for a great principle not only in politics but in the arts the smaller state or nation naturally offers the better field for local development and for the promotion of characteristic traits and customs rather than of borrowed traits and customs so for individual development it is hard to see how the large size of a country can be of benefit unless the pride of belonging to something big and powerful may be considered a benefit it was perhaps occasionally useful for purpose of protection to say civis romanus sum but the actual effect of the big roman empire with all the lack of interference which it professed to practice was to hamper the spirit of the conquered peoples so long as war and opposition prevail among nations as they have prevailed up to the present time it is inevitable that nations should seek mere size and power and it is inevitable that in large nations there should be a tendency toward concentration of power which brings a consequent lessening of local and individual initiative and development the tendency is toward assimilation toward stifling local ways in dress in habits in education in architecture in music in literature in all the ways that should manifest individual development and interesting variety the tendency is toward slavish similarity local efforts for freedom of development are well-nigh helpless in the face of the domination of some central influence new york must dominate all the states london all britain paris all france and since eighteen seventy one berlin all germany there is one striking particular familiar to us all on which it may be worth while to pause a moment to consider the damage done by this centralizing influence i refer to education with the remarkable extension of popular education we can see all the more fully the unfortunate effect of the tendency to one type one standard how much richer more interesting and more valuable would be the whole of education 
if various localities would follow methods of their own. The strength of England, says a recent writer in Blackwoods, has been that she has had schools and universities of many types. If the ambition of the Board of Education be not checked, we all shall be shaped and inspected to a single pattern. Not only in England, but elsewhere there is danger that this tendency is producing the uniformity of method which is death to all that would make for freedom and life. In the United States, for example, hardly in more than one or two places within thirty years has there been any effort for local initiative. There is a surprising aspiration toward a general sameness. The schools of Omaha, Atlanta, and Providence are, as they seem to want to be, quite like the schools in New York or Boston. This tendency to sameness is a loss. Public education is but one example of the way in which people may lose the richness of local color and the free feeling of individual development by not heeding the fact that the best contribution to the good of the whole on the part of a community, or city, or state, as of an individual, consists in the expression of itself. Individuals and peoples, it cannot be too often said, fulfill their true destiny by being allowed to be true to their real selves, not by being drawn into the imitation of other individuals or peoples. Silesia and Poland, for example, would surely have fulfilled a nobler purpose could they have developed their own characteristics as independent nations, and all the world would have been richer for the free and natural distinctive development of these nations. The world is surely made infinitely richer in all fine qualities by means of variety in independent development. It does not follow that each locality or small nation left to its own ways would produce great art or ennobling customs. There are other elements involved besides mere freedom, but it is absolutely true that freedom, with the feeling of independence, is the beginning of all the elements that foster distinctive and characteristic development. All small nations have not produced greatness, but it is a remarkable fact that out of a little nation came our religion, and out of a little nation came the greatest art and literature of ancient times. Out of little Tuscany came the greatest art of medieval and renaissance times. It was even in a little England that Shakespeare was born, and all the fineness in literature and music that was transferred to Germany came when there may be said to have been no Germany. Goethe was born in little free Frankfurt, Schiller in little Württemberg, Bach in little Saxe-Weimar, Beethoven in the little archbishopric of Cologne, and Wagner in little Saxony. With the establishment of a League of Nations the free day of little nations may dawn again. A true League of Nations would free them from the fear of oppression and from the need of ambition toward an unnatural bigness. It would make plain the way for all nations to develop their own civilization within, while in outward relations conforming to international cooperation. Consider the tragedy upon tragedy that has been enacted in grim reality upon the world's stage in the deliberate slaughter of little nations. It is useless to name names like Silesia or Poland, for the history of the world has been made lurid by the injustice, cruelty, and ruthlessness 
which have been manifested towards smaller states by their more powerful neighbours. And yet the great nations believed themselves right and did not blush to continue to call themselves Christian, driven as they were by the fear of other neighbours, and by the mad belief that international cutthroatism must be an inevitable and perpetual policy. There is no reason for the annexation and unification and centralization for which conquerors and statesmen have worked and of which the peoples have been falsely proud, except the security of power and the gain of commerce by force. At the bottom has lain the conception that one nation must thrive by another's loss. The utter rejection of this conception is the prime demand. Then, with the removal of the fear of oppression, which a league of nations should assure, and with the spread of a new thought of friendly internationalism, which a league of nations would promote, there need be no ambition for mere bigness or overwhelming power. The peoples of the earth, left to independent action in their natural groupings, could develop their natural and individualistic characteristics in the ways that would most surely honour themselves and enrich the world. End of Little Nations by James H. Dillard The South Atlantic Quarterly, Volume 19, Number 3, July 1920